Welcome back to the Richard Roper Podcast. I am Richard Roper. Fireworks will be sprinkling and sparkling and spreading through the skies in the next couple of days here in these United States of America with the 4th of July holiday right around the corner. We're going to talk about the best fireworks scenes in movies on the podcast today. Also, there's a controversy about the Jennifer Lawrence comedy, No Hard Feelings. We'll get into that. Taylor Swift tells her fans to stop being bullies, to please don't be bullies. Who knew that those Swifties could be so rough on people? Uh, all of that and much, much more. Of course, we'll also have plenty of reviews coming your ways. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. What do you want, Maddie? Uh, a Long Island iced tea for me and... Pepsi, please. We only have Coke. Oh. Do you want to go somewhere else? Um, no, Percy, he'll have a Long Island iced tea, too. Okay. Am I allowed to be here? Oh, yeah, I know the owner, it's fine. It's just that I'm not 21. That doesn't matter here. Well, I think it's a, a federal law. <laughs> I just hope my parents don't find out that I'm here. Hey, Long Island I see for America's sweetheart and one for the boy. Uh, this is the worst iced tea I've ever had. Okay, that is a clip from No Hard Feelings. The Jennifer Lawrence, a uh, little bit raunchy, a little bit naughty, R-rated comedy that opened last week. Um... Hollywood Reporter had a story saying that the uh, there's been a little bit of a, a backlash, a pushback, if you will, on social media. For those of you who haven't heard about the movie, even though there's a shitload of press about it out there. And, of course, you can get my reviews on a previous podcast here on the Richard Roper Show, also at uh, suntimes.com. But basically, the setup is uh, Jennifer Lawrence plays a 32-year-old who was hired by a couple of uh, wealthy helicopter parents to uh, date, if you will, to date real hard their 19-year-old son, who's played by Andrew Barth Feldman. That's the setup of it. So there was a little bit of uh, pushback on social media. Some people saying, my gosh, but, but this is a movie about parents hiring essentially a woman to uh, seduce their son to have sex with their son. And that is indeed the premise. But uh, you know, you got to watch it. The thing about, uh, you know, movies and their and television series and their subject matter is it's not about the subject's matter. It's about how it's about the subject matter. It's not about the plot. It's about how it executes the plot. Just because the subject matter of a movie or of a TV show uh, is uh, violent or uh, sexually charged or is about bad people doesn't mean it's an endorsement of bad people. We've had this argument for about, oh, I don't know, ever since books started printing and certainly throughout the history of movies and there have been different codes and things invoked. But, you know, even if you go back in more recent history, everything from movies like The Godfather and there's some are saying that is a celebration of the mob lifestyle it is a celebration of a crime family and if you watch it all the way through it's uh it's a great american tragedy of course um nearly everyone who's in any of the godfather movies uh meets either a, a sudden violent death 
or uh, dies sad and alone and broken. Uh, same thing, obviously, with The Sopranos. Some people said, oh, man, this is a celebration of Tony Soprano. It certainly was not. So in the case of No Hard Feelings, this isn't a movie that says, hey, parents, this is a good idea. If your child is a little bit socially awkward and is going to go off to college and hasn't had any life experience, specifically relationship or sexual experience, put out an ad in Craigslist. That's not what they're saying. I mean, yeah, it, you know, it's a little bit controversial, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, it's certainly uh, not for everyone. I've gotten a couple of emails from people who, you know, were surprised I gave it three stars who said, you know, I can't believe you're going to give something like this three stars. They hadn't seen the movie based on their emails, but they were still disappointed in me. Writer, director Gene Stupnitsky told The Hollywood Reporter, uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, a cautionary tale. It's not something that is endorsing this type of behavior I, you know again see the movie I, first of all it has kind of a a sweet and good heart at the center of it and yeah there's some body scenes but i, I want to go back for a second and just talk about how movies today i mean this that, one of the reasons i think uh, no hard feelings got so much press just for being a r-rated theatrical release uh, a sex comedy if you will a romantic comedy with with an edge is that that is so rare whereas in the 80s it was every other week and when somebody first mentioned to me on twitter about this controversy my my first response was wait until they hear about the plot of risky business well joe your stats are very respectable you've done some solid work here but it's not quite ivy league now is it You know, Bill, there's one thing I've learned in all my years. Sometimes you gotta say, what the fuck? Make your move. I beg your pardon? So, how we doing? Looks like University of Illinois. You know, one of the most beloved classic comedies of the 1980s is one of the films that really made Tom Cruise a star, a young Tom Cruise. And again, the premise, it's a really well-made, smart, funny, and yes, edgy film. But the premise here is that Tom Cruise's character of Joel, who lives in the North Shore of Chicago and is hoping to get into Princeton, has to do a, a project for his business class, his business club. And he's going through all these boring things. And then he comes up with the idea with the help of Lana, played by Rebecca De Mornay, and she's a sex worker, that they will, uh, while his parents are out of town, they will turn his house essentially into a brothel and they will charge every young kid, young man, I should say. Uh, there's never really any discussion about how they, they all should be 18, I suppose. You know, they're seniors in high school. But whatever the case may be, uh, the, Joe will make money by having Lana and her friends come to the house for a long weekend and they will charge young men for sexual favors. That is the setup of risky business. And again, if you watch the movie, it's not really saying this is a path for a young man. It's just a, it's just an edgy, funny comedy that I think actually holds up well, as opposed to, and I will acknowledge this as opposed to certain other 1980s films that don't hold up so well, even though they have a kind of a, a place in the pop culture landscape. Uh, for example, famously or infamously, uh, 16 Candles, which, of course, at heart is this sweet coming of age tale. Uh, it, it's a completely ridiculous premise. Uh, Molly Ringwald's character, Samantha, it's her 16th birthday. And because her sister's getting married, the entire family forgets her birthday. 
And then there's the big relationship or, you know, possible romance she has with the character of Jake. Uh, but at, at the beginning of the movie and throughout the party scene, Jake's got this girlfriend. She's passed out. And he talks to uh, uh, Tad, who's the character, the nerd character played by Anthony Michael Hall. He's got, you know, he says, I've got Caroline, Caroline in the bedroom right now, passed out cold. I could violate her 10 different ways if I wanted to. He's talking about his own girlfriend being passed out and then sort of hands her off while she's unconscious to Ted and then Ted drives away with Caroline and uh, we don't know what happens there but we kind of get an idea that maybe something happens and maybe she's not completely there for that encounter and the long uh, duck dong character obviously very problematic no excuses for this but it's reflective of the times which you know fortunately have progressed since then but that character is a very unfortunate stereotype and then you think about a movie like Revenge of the Nerds, which spawned a bunch of sequels and, again, was, you know, at its heart, this feel-good comedy. It's a great concept about these nerds at a college who are being bullied by the, you know, the jocks, and then they get their revenge. You know, the problem with this, this is a piece from Eric Connor of Collider mentioning this. When Nerdy Lewis witnesses Hunky Gable blowing off his girlfriend, Betty, at a Halloween party, he dons Gable's costume and actually has initiating sex with Betty, who believes it's her boyfriend, and then only after discovers that it's actually Lewis. I mean, that's essentially, not essentially, that's that's assault. That's absolutely assault. Um, and then later, the, the fraternity of the nerds, they need to uh, raise money, so they take uh, naked pictures of Betty and they put them in pie tins and cover the pies with uh, whipped cream because, of course, they had uh, sneaked into the sorority house and placed cameras so that they could spy on the unsuspecting uh, sorority members. All of this, uh, you know, horrible, unethical, in some cases, illegal behavior. And I have to say, I can go back and I have gone back and watched um, Risky Business and 16 Candles and still, for the most part, really appreciated what these films are all about. I can't say the same for Revenge of the Nerds. We live in different times now. I understand and respect if some people are offended by um, no hard feelings, but compared to the back of the day, the subject matter is not that not that problematic, I don't think. Not at all. Hey, I want to mention this too. This is interesting. Taylor Swift, you may have heard of her. She's a popular singer, songwriter, plays live venues, and people show up to see her and really seem to enjoy it. She's great. I, I love her. And by the way, uh, I think we mentioned this in the review of The Bear, but uh, season two of The Bear makes great use uh, in, I want to say, episode seven. Yes, episode seven makes great use of a Taylor Swift song. You never know what kind of music might pop up in The Bear. But just recently, Taylor Swift was performing at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, she played Dear John. And I guess it's the first time the Swifties tell me the first time she's played this song live in more than a decade. It's a song she wrote when she was 19. Everybody pretty much figures it's about John Mayer. And it's really interesting because Taylor Swift is cautioning her fans in this specific incident and actually asking uh, her fans to go easy on the people that they believe are the subject matter of various songs. So uh, she said, um, I'm putting this out now because I want to own my own music. This is part of her reclaiming her own music by doing the re-recordings and good for her. Uh, Taylor Swift said, I'm 33 years old. I don't care about anything that happened to me when I was 19, except the songs I wrote. What I'm trying to tell you is I'm not putting this album out so that you should go and feel the need to defend me on the internet against someone you think 
I might have written the song about 14 million years ago. So Taylor Swift is, is asking her fans to show some kindness and compassion. It's very interesting to me, the dynamic of the modern day, the 21st century pop, rock, uh, rap, hip hop, whatever you want to, you know, DJ, whatever the case may be, the star and the relationship they have with their fans are certainly the relationship the fans expect from them. Back in the day, you know, people always wanted to, you know, uh, get close, sometimes really close. Uh, but people always wanted to kind of feel like they had a bond with their favorite musicians. You know, we've heard stories and seen stories and heard from people or might even feel this way ourselves about how a certain artist or a certain album or a certain song at a certain time really had an impact on a fan. You know, whether it was because they were in, depre in a depressed state and it made them feel like they weren't alone or their heart was broken and they could relate to the song, whatever the case may be. And I think that's a beautiful thing. That is a very personal connection. But this idea that the artists owe you something beyond their best work, whether you buy their work or download their work or see them live, the idea that they owe you something, I don't buy into that. And, you know, Taylor Swift's career is, is a classic example of that. When she was very young, she didn't necessarily always get involved in every cause out there. And people were saying, you have a platform, you have, as a young woman, you have a responsibility, you must say this or that. Well, that's really actually up to her. And then in later years, when she did take a stand, and this is famously documented, even some people in her own team, including her father, were like, you know, if you start taking political stances or social stances, you risk alienated, alienating half of your audience. So then people say, I don't want to hear from these artists telling me their political and social opinions. I just want to hear them do the music. It's a can't win situation for the artist. I think a lot of artists and athletes and actors and whatever the case may be, take very admirable and public stances. And in a lot of cases, and you know, first person that comes to mind is uh, LeBron James, who will never shut up and dribble. And thank God for that, who has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into good causes and, and tons and tons, hundreds and thousands of other public figures. But then there's this other thing where, especially I think with young fans, of pop stars and even certain actors, they feel as if they really know these people. I I, I heard somewhere that, you know, among Swifties, for example, uh, there's this feeling that uh, if you've taken a picture with her or you've met her, you have an elevated status uh, over other just fans, which is insane and asinine because you spent 30 seconds with a pop star. But also this idea that, you know, you have to be protective of them and defending them. And I've written pieces. For example, I remember when I wrote a, a review of the uh, Michael Jackson uh, documentary. I immediately heard from hundreds of Michael Jackson fans who tore into me, assuming that because I reported on a documentary and wrote and reviewed a documentary in which alleged victims of Michael Jackson came forward and told their stories, that I was immediately calling him guilty and saying he had done it. When, in fact, I'm just reporting and writing about the film which even in with in the film's case, you know, you make up your own mind. So the idea, like, you know, whether it's Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift or Selena Gomez, there's this feeling of almost ownership where, you know, if if one of those celebrities, if they feel like they're under attack or they were wronged romantically, they'll swarm all over social media. And that's insane. Yeah, you know, they're not your friend. I hate to tell you this. They don't need your protection. I mean, obviously, if you want to defend your favorite pop star, that's your right. But the idea of going after somebody, and it's a little condescending when you really think about it. It's like they can take care of themselves. I, I like that Taylor Swift did that, uh, that she told her fans, you know, don't be mean girls or mean guys, whatever the case may be. All right. Uh, I mentioned firework scenes in the movies. We're going to listen to all the, no, we're not going to listen to firework scenes in the movies on a podcast. That would be insane. 
but I did want to talk about some of my favorite firework scenes in the movies. If you've got some favorites, you can always email me at rroper at suntimes.com. Um, so I just want to mention a couple of them uh, that I think are just, you know, when you think about it, of course, fireworks are are so cinematic and so beautiful and visual, and they can be uh, invoked uh, to the worst cliche in romantic comedies and overdone, but sometimes they could be, you know, used to great comedic or dramatic effect. Uh, for example, remember the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring where the mischief turned to a, uh, a fireworks dragon for a second there, everybody at the fair, the event thinks that there's actually a dragon when it's just fireworks. I am going to play a little clip here. Uh, this is the scene from to catch a thief, a great film with Cary Grant and Grace Kelly, where the fireworks are the backdrop and the very obvious uh, metaphor and symbol of the sexual tension between the two characters. Let's listen to a little bit of To Catch a Thief. Never had a better offer in your whole life, one with everything. I've never had a crazier one. Just as long as you're satisfied. As well as I do, this necklace is imitation. Well, I'm not. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, Blowout, uh, which is a terrific film from Brian De Palma, a uh, reimagining of, of Blow Up. Uh, John Travolta's character, Jack, uh, is trying to save a young woman named Sally, who's played by Nancy Allen. And uh, let's just say things uh, end in a very you know tragic and, and sad manner. And in one of Travolta's best performances, there's a there's a moment at the film's climax where he realizes that he was unable to save the day while fireworks are exploding all around him. Uh, also have to mention, of course, the great Gatsby, the Leonardo DiCaprio version. Great use of fireworks there. And one of my favorite uses of fireworks is from a movie that. They're not actually fireworks, and yet they are. I'm talking about the home run scene in The Natural. So, of course, when Roy Hobbs hits that pennant-winning home run against uh, Pittsburgh, when the New York Knights defeat the Pittsburgh Pirates to win the pennant in 1939, and the home run hits the lights, and then there's a big electrical uh, kind of chain reaction and lights exploding. And thank God no one was hurt because that could have been dangerous, folks. But it turns into fireworks, and it's just absolutely beautiful. Barry Levinson's direction, the 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 score uh, from Randy Newman is one of the best of all time. So I love the fireworks, even though they weren't fireworks in the natural. Quickly, some of my other favorites. The Sandlot has a great fireworks scene. Beasts of the Southern Wild. Uh, you can go all the way back to a 1927 film, believe it or not, called Sunrise. Look at the fireworks scene. It's on YouTube from Sunrise, 1927. The Fisher King, Mary Poppins, Manhattan, uh, Return of the Jedi. Lots of great fireworks scenes in the movies. Why don't we take a break? And speaking of fireworks and things all-American, let's hear a little bit about Portillo's. All right, we're going to talk about Portillo's. You guys know the drill here. They're known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the famous correct Chicago ingredients, right down to that poppy seed bun. But there's so much more. They got great burgers. You can get Italian sausage, Italian beef, amazing French fries. Also, some really good salads. Don't 
shortchange the salads at Portillo's. And then, of course, you top it off with the legendary, the one and only chocolate cake. I know people who order the entire cake for birthdays and other occasions, but you can also get a, a slice, which will probably last you two helpings because it's amazing. And always, of course, you keep the cake at room temperature. That's how they do it at Portillo's. That's how you want to consume it. Now, there are Portillo's in many locations across the country, but you can also order online and ship it via Portillo's.com. You can find a location near you, order online, Portillo's, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com, Portillo's.com. I'm retiring. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Hitler made mistakes. And with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. times in my life I've seen things. I've been tortured with voodoo. Been shot nine times, including once by your father. All right, that's the swan song, of course, for Indiana Jones. It's called Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Harrison Ford returning to the iconic role he created so many decades ago. It's been 15 years since the last Indiana Jones uh, movie. That was uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was not really great. Uh, now we have Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, uh, the final chapter for Harrison Ford and for Indiana Jones. And I cannot tell you how disappointed I was, how let down I was by this absolute clunker of a movie, guys. It's just completely unnecessary tone deaf not particularly funny some decent action sequences and of course good performances but it's just the whole setup is kind of depressing so after there's a pretty cool um uh, prologue scene set during world war ii where uh indiana jones and they do i have to say some of the best de-aging i've ever seen in this relatively new art form cgi form so a de-aged uh harrison ford as indiana jones uh gets involved with this big misadventure and uh extended fight sequence against the nazis there's explosions and there's a cool scene on a train it all it's all about gaining possession of this dial of destiny the MacGuffin, if you will speaking of hitchcock the MacGuffin, the and in this case if you get the two pieces of the dial of destiny and you clink them together and they click you'll actually be able to travel in time and alter the course of history oh boy we haven't had that plot before uh then we flash forward to the bulk of the story which is set in 1969 and here's where i think the movie just goes absolutely off the rails paints itself into a corner from which it cannot emerge so it's 1969 the summer of love uh the astronauts have just returned from landing on the moon there's going to be a big parade celebrating that. And against that backdrop, there's a crabby old man who lives in an apartment building and is yelling at the young hippies in the building to turn down the music because they're playing like the Beatles and cool and space oddity. Huh? What about that one? David Bowie. And that crabby old man 
is Indiana Jones. He's living in a shitty apartment. He's teaching at a look what appears to be a third rate college and his students no longer worship him or look at him like an icon or a legend. And is he's clearly not putting his heart into the lectures. We see a scene where he's just going through the motions and people are like falling asleep and you want him to say, hey, I've been shot at like nine times, not just shot at, but shot nine times. And I've been involved with everything from, you know, magical adventures to snakes and i've saved the world and y'all can't even stay awake in my class so it's kind of depressing uh the setup here is that he is now estranged i guess about to be divorced uh from his wife uh who of course is played by the wonderful karen allen or was played we don't want to give too much away here although you can kind of figure it out and then this big adventure presents itself at his door his goddaughter who he hasn't seen in 18 years comes to him and says, I know where we can find the, that magical device thingy. Let's go have a big adventure. And she's played by uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's a terrific actress, but is miscast here and also is just stuck playing kind of a, a sour, annoying, selfish character. So Indy goes off with his goddaughter, on Helena, on one last adventure that takes them all around the world as they try to retrieve and figure out if this object is real. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen, who has played villains, including Hannibal Lecter, and of course in in one of the Bond movies and a lot of other, you know, he's always playing the bad guy. So he's kind of he's a great actor, but he's kind of a predictable choice to play the obligatory Nazi who's trying to get a hold of the device. Because if he gets a hold of the, of the device, he's going to go back in time and he's going to figure out how to change the destiny of World War II. It's loud. It's clunky. It's, I think, about 25 minutes longer. And I know we harp on this. Some people say we harp on this, but it's a valid point. It's much longer than any of the other Indiana Jones movies without having any justification for that. Uh, the chase scenes the, and the practical effects are okay. To me, it was kind of a sour, you know, they tried to end on an uplifting note, but kind of a grumpy Dial of Destiny. Uh, one of the more disappointing movies of the year, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Also coming out is uh, Run, Rabbit, Run on Netflix. This has Sarah Snook, who recently, of course, played Shiv Roy on Succession, playing a very different role. This is a horror film. Uh, she plays a divorced mother uh, whose child starts acting up in disturbing ways and lashing out at mom and saying she's someone else. And, of course, one of the telltale tropes in, in horror movies where the kids are a little bit off, they start doing some really fucked up drawings. Right. Think of all the movies where they're sketching stuff and you're like, oh, I think I got a problem here that might just be beyond a timeout or a couple of counseling sessions. This is very stylishly done. Uh, it's about a mother who's grieving, a mother who also has a dark secret from her past. It's got all the all the looks and feels, including the jump scares of films like Bad Seed and Orphan and Sixth Sense and The Omen and Birth and Hereditary. But that's the problem. It feels like a greatest hits compilation of better psychological horror films and i know sometimes these movies are going to end uh, kind of a on an ambiguous note and you have to decide for yourself but in this case it just ends with a thud and we kind of feel like that's it that's all there is let's end on a positive note as we try to do on the richard roper podcast there's a documentary about rock hudson on hbo that's playing right now called rock hudson all that haven't allowed the name certainly should be familiar even to the youngest of listeners rock hudson was a great matinee idol uh, from the 1950s, who came up in a time where they were still manufacturing these stars, so to speak. 
And the documentary does a great job of chronicling that. So a lot of guys who came out of the Navy or the Army, World War II, who went to Hollywood to maybe try to make it as actors, uh, there was a, a guy by the name of Henry Wilson. He was a very powerful and manipulative agent. And he would groom all these guys. And he kind of invented the beefcake craze of the 1950s. And he would create these names for these actors. Ty Harden, Race Gentry, Guy Madison, Buck Class. That's a real name, Buck Class. Not from Boogie Nights, but from the 50s. Troy Donahue, Tab Hunter, those names might be kind of familiar. And Rock Hudson, who became the most successful and kind of uh, accomplished of all those actors from the beefcake era. And the documentary does a great job of chronicling how Rock Hudson went from being just this, wow, he's six foot four, he's chiseled, he's handsome, he's charming. So he was cast in a lot of, you know, action movies, gladiator movies, westerns, whatever the case may be. But he really had some talent. And uh, by the mid 50s, after starring in uh, Magnificent Obsession, a Douglas Sirk film, and then uh, Giant with Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean, Rock Hudson was actually nominated for an Academy Award. He was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. But as the documentary points out, during this entire time, Rock, Rock Hudson was essentially living a double life because he was gay at a time where you just absolutely did not even think about going public with that because your career would be over. That's just the reality of it. So throughout his life, Rock Hudson kind of lived this double life where you know he'd have a sham marriage to his agent secretary, and then he'd you know they'd, they'd have him out and about with various co-stars. But in the meantime, he was spending his personal time living his personal life as he had every right to do of course but unfortunately and kind of tragically was never able to come forward and then when his appearance started changing uh in the uh, early 80s and it was pretty clear that he was sick and this was right around the time the aids epidemic was becoming widespread and widely known and rock hudson became the first major major celebrity if you will public figure to uh, die of hiv age related ca causes so the documentary chronicles the triumphs and great joys of rock hudson's life and the tragedies uh, all the way from the start to, to the end it's called uh, rock hudson all that heaven allowed it's on hbo check it out if you can all right let's end on that note folks if you do celebrate the fourth of july be safe Everybody have a great weekend, and we will be back with fresh material before you know it. Take care.